theyeshiva.net. People are tense. People are anxious. People are stressful. And here I share with you a teaching of the grandson of the Alter Rebbe, another grandson, the Lubavitcher Rebbe, Rabbi Menachem Mendel Schneerson, who said this on the 15th of Shvat, 1975, published in Lukutei Sichos 16 Yisra. And he asked a simple and extraordinary question and gave a very profound answer. And the question is, in the Torah portion of Yisra, it says that Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, came to visit him. And what does a father-in-law do when he comes to visit his son-in-law? He started to give him eitzes. He started to give him advice. And he told him, it's not good the way you're running the country, the way you're running the people. What happened? He saw that Moses was sitting all day from morning to night teaching every single Jew who had a question, dealing with every disputation, with every debate, with every quarrel, with all the bickering and all the infighting, every financial, moral, ethical, civil, spiritual dispute, everybody came to Moses, to Moshe. And he was literally handling every person, every problem, every challenge, every doubt. Jethro told Moses, Yisra told Moshe, Novel Tibo, you're going to wither away. This is not a good idea. You can't sit alone and judge three million Jews. It's like I would tell you that you have to answer three million emails a day or even 3,000 emails a day. You'll go crazy. Moses, this is not going to work. You have to delegate. You have to learn how to delegate. If you do not delegate, everybody will crumble. You will be destroyed. The people will be destroyed. And Jethro tells his son-in-law, you have to delegate and confer responsibility over people, appoint what we call middle management to run the nation, and then everything will fall into place. And the Torah says Moses obeyed his father-in-law. And the commentators and the Rebbe asked a very obvious question. You need a rocket scientist to tell you that one man can't handle Three million people alone. What was Moses thinking? There's an expression in Yiddish, a guest for a while sees a mile. A guest for a while sees a mile. You know, sometimes you come into somebody's home for a few minutes and you see things that are going on that they themselves don't notice. Granted, sometimes you need an outsider to give perspective. But this is an obvious issue. Moses grew up in a palace. He knew about infrastructure. Rabbi Sherman has been here many years, yeah? Why did he bring other shluchim? Why doesn't he do everything himself? <laughs> and the answer is, because you wither away. It's impossible. Many of you run successful companies. You have offices, you have projects, you have organizations, you have corporations, you have businesses. The first rule in successful management is you got to learn how to delegate. You have to train other people with you and under you. If not... If you're going to be changing the light bulbs and you're going to be making every copy yourself and you're going to be making every decision yourself, nothing is going to happen. We all understand that. Some control freaks who can't delegate, they remain very, very small and very, very petty. So you need Mo, you need an outsider, a non-Jew, to come from the outside world and tell Moses 
that you can't run a show this way? How do you understand this? It's a good question, no? And the Rebbe said, furthermore, and if Moses did have a way of doing it, why did he acquiesce to Jethro? Why didn't he tell Yisrael, I have a way, I'll do what I I, I know what I'm doing. He surrendered to his father-in-law. So the Lubavitcher Rebbe, in his own vintage and inimitable style, presented what I would call a very moving and emotional insight. And briefly, it's briefly, very briefly, it's this insight that I think is, gives us perspective on how to live in such a time. And this is what he said. He said, Moses understood that you have to delegate. He understood, like every successful person understands, that one man can't do everything alone. But Moses also knew something else. He knew who he was. And he understood that when people have direct contact with him, everything changes. He needed to give every single Jew, man, woman, and child, no matter who they were, direct contact with him, so that they could feel that they can approach him with every issue and with every problem. Because in Judaism, ultimately, every person must be a student of Moses. We don't believe that some people are too small or too remote or too insignificant. Everybody stood at Sinai. Everybody hears Torah directly from Moses or heard it directly from God. However, there's people who have fights and disputes. How are you going to handle that? So the Rebbe said... When people would come into the presence of Moses, that itself, he knew, would have the greatest impact. That it wouldn't take the same amount of time to handle as if he would have delegated it. Because when you're in the presence of a person like Moshe, your whole mindset, your whole attitude changes. I want to illustrate this with a little old Jewish story. There was an old father and a son They were both living on a farm. The father was 90 years old, living at home. And the son was working the farm. It was winter time, it was cold. This was a poor family, so the home was not warm and they had one coat. And the father told his son, listen, I'm 90 years old, if I get cold, if I get a cold, I can die. I need the coat for myself. The son told the father, no, I'm outdoors. I'm working outdoors. I need the coat. You're indoors. And they got into a dispute. So they went to the rabbi. And the rabbi says, what's going on? They say, we have one coat. The father says, it belongs to me. I'm 90 and I'm home. I need a coat. And the son says, I know he's 90, but I'm outdoors. And it's freezing outside. I need the coat. The rabbi thinks and he says, the son is right. He's working outdoors. He gets the coat. You're in the house. Let's figure out how to get you some wood. Maybe you can make a fire. Maybe you could find some old shmatas, some blankets. Protect yourself. You're indoors. Your son gets the coat. Okay. They're walking home from the rabbi's home, back to their farm. And the son is wearing the coat and he's all happy. He won. And the poor old man, the 90-year-old father, is trembling. In the middle of the road, the son feels horrible. How can I watch my father so cold, even if I'm right? I'm so wrong. And he takes off his coat and he puts it on his father. He says, I'm sorry, you have the coat. The next morning, 
Father is proud of himself. He has the coat. He's looking at his son working in the farm and he's trembling. And he feels so guilty. How can I do this to my son? He calls in his son. He says, you have the coat. Son says, no, you get the coat. Now they're fighting again, but now the fight is different. He wants his child to get the coat. The child wants the father to get the coat. They go back to the rabbi. They come into the rabbi. The rabbi says, what happened now? They said, we have a new fight. What's the fight? Father says, I cannot bear that my son stands outside without a coat. He gets the coat. Son says, no, I will feel too guilty knowing that my father is stuck inside without a coat. He gets the coat. Each one is fighting that they don't want the coat. They want the other one should have the coat. The rabbi looks at them and starts thinking and says, you know, in my closet, I have an old warm down coat that I don't need. (laughs) I'll lend it to you. And he goes and he takes out his own coat and he gives it to them. He says, now you have two coats, one for the son and one for the father. The old man says, Rabbi, I have a question. Why didn't you come up with this idea the first time around? Why now? And the rabbi looked at them and he gave such a beautiful answer. He says, you see, the first time around, You came here to my office screaming. The father was screaming, it's my coat. The son was screaming, it's my coat. Father was screaming, it's my coat. Son was screaming, it's my coat. Subconsciously, you know what? I was screaming. It's my coat. It's my coat. You were screaming that it's your coat. And subconsciously, that coat in the closet, I was thinking, it's my coat. I'm not giving it away. The second time around, you come back. Tati is screaming, it's your coat, it's your coat, you take it. And the son is screaming, no Tati, no daddy, it's your coat, you take it. And you know what it triggered in me? It triggered in me the feeling, it's your coat, I want to share the coat with you. And that's when my conscious mind discovered that I had a coat in the closet. In other words, my attitude towards you is ultimately so powerful in determining your response. When the rabbi hears a father and a son quibbling, fighting over the coat, and everybody's just thinking about themselves, subconsciously he's also thinking about himself, because that's the environment he lives in. But when the rabbi is in an environment where everyone is thinking about the other person, subconsciously he doesn't even realize it. His brain changes. His brain expands. His neural pathways open up to experience larger, different opportunities, and suddenly you realize, I I have a coat, I'm not using it, I can give it to them. Comes the Lubavitcher Rebbe and says, two people are fighting, they come into Moses' office, Yisro says, Jethro says, you're going to wither away, you're going to have hundreds of thousands of Jews fighting. Moses knows that when you're in the presence of somebody who radiates the organic oneness of the cosmos and of humanity, It impacts people in a deeper place. They start seeing themselves differently. And when they see themselves differently, 90% of of the disputations will wither away. Geula Cohen was a very, very well-known member of the Israeli parliament for decades. She passed away not long ago in her 90s. Very special woman. I once read an article she wrote about the Lubavitcher Rebbe in Ma'ariv. She was sitting with him for two hours in the 1960s. 
And she wrote as follows. It left such an impression on me. She wrote, I have met many people in my life. Sometimes you meet a brilliant sage. You come out of the meeting, they're brilliant, you still remain a simpleton. Sometimes you meet a brilliant leader. After a long meeting, you come out of the meeting, you're dazzled by their courage and resilience and vision, but you remain the same person that entered the meeting. You can meet the greatest scientist of a generation. You come out of the meeting overwhelmed, startled, impressed, but you remain who you are, they remain who they are. She says there's one exception. When you go in to meet a real believer, a ma'amin, after two hours, you come out a different person. Ki ma'amin ma'amin Because the believer believes in you too. And she says, I spent a few hours with the Lubavitcher Rebbe. He's a great scientist. He's a brilliant mind. He's an extraordinary leader. He's a man of courage and resilience and vision. He's a great Talmudist. He's a great lover of Israel. Great heart and great mind. But most importantly, he's a believer. And the believer believes in you too. So she says, you come out not the same person. This was Moses' perspective. I want every Jew to come in contact with me because by coming in contact with me, they will come in contact with themselves. Because what is the definition of a true leader if not somebody who empowers you and allows you to come face to face with your most real and authentic you? That is the definition of a Rebbe. That is the definition of a real leader. A real leader is not somebody who impresses you with their dazzling brilliance. That may be true. Or with their tremendous accomplishments. A real leader is somebody that after you come in contact with them, you get to discover yourself. Moses was the humblest person, the Torah says. It was not about him, I'm great. It was about helping people see their own greatness. Or to quote the legendary, the late Rabbi Jonathan Sachs, who just passed away a few months ago, who said that there are small people, there are small leaders who like to create followers. But the greatest of leaders, they don't want to create followers. They want to create leaders. They want to help people achieve their own unique potential. So Moses understood that for Jews, every Jew, to have direct access to him, even two Jews are fighting about something going on near one of their tents in the desert. He didn't want to delegate. He wanted they should come into his four cubits because being in his presence, experiencing consciously and subconsciously his faith in them, his faith in God, the fact that he was a spiritual conduit would help them experience themselves as conduits of infinity. And the moment you experience yourself as a conduit for infinity, everything changes. You see yourself as a much greater person. And the moment you see yourself as a much greater person, then 90% of your fights are gone. Take a look at most of our fights and arguments. It's coming from my trauma, from my insecurity, from my low self-esteem, from my scars, from my wounds. Tell me about most marriage disputes. 
You don't have to all speak up at once. But most marital disputes, most fights you have with your children, with my children, with your brothers, sisters, parents, brother-in-law, sister-in-law, neighbor, former neighbor, employer, employee. Most of our fights come from the fact that I don't recognize who I am. I think that I'm small, I'm tiny. All anger, all, 95% of anger is a secondary emotion, eclipsing pain and loneliness, right? Next time you get angry, don't worship your anger. The anger is a cover-up for something much deeper. It's easy to get angry and say, you're such an idiot, you're such a horrible person. It's harder to look deep into myself and say, what am I angry about? Something was just triggered inside of me. I'm experiencing so much pain and loneliness. The Talmud, the Rambam says, the Zohar says, that anger is a form of idolatry. Why? <laughs> and the answer is, what's idolatry? Idolatry is you're looking at a physical object and you're attributing divine qualities to it. The physical object is just a manifestation of divine energy. Anger is just a manifestation of something much deeper, much more authentic. Don't turn that into the real issue. So, so many of our fights come because we look at ourselves as small people, and that's what trauma does to us. So Moses wanted that direct contact because he understood that in his presence, the consciousness of the people will be elevated. They will see themselves in a different light and 90% of their disputes will be resolved without him even uttering a word. And yet he acquiesced to Jethro because he understood that the infrastructure of Judaism must be built in a way that it should be able to become generational and should be able to endure the fluctuations of history, so that even in later generations, when Moses is not here anymore, Judaism should be able to have a structure of what we call Sanhedrin, but they didn't, judiciary systems of scholars and sages that can take the truths of Torah given to Moses and ultimately allocate them and apply them to various circumstances and situations. For me, this is so telling about our mission today. Because when you live in a fractured world, there's one of two options. Either you're part of the problem, or you become part of the solution. There's no other option. In every situation that I confront, either I become part of the remedy, or I remain part of the problem. We live today in a time when there's a lot of fragmentation, a lot of brokenness. There are arguments, there are theories to this extreme, and theories this extreme. There are those who, when they hear somebody disagrees with them, this person is busy with conspiracy theories. And the other person hurls accusations that you're out for lunch, you're in denial, you're brainwashed, you're indoctrinated. And there's so many arguments and so many debates, and then his families split up. Families get dichotomized and torn apart. Siblings don't talk to each other, especially if they find out who you voted for. People are like afraid to be themselves, to be authentic. What's our mission in such a time? What's going to be the future? People are uncertain. And here is where the real issue and the very practical idea of the Rebbe comes in. And that is, at every single moment, I can have a choice. Either I live in a higher space 
and that's what I will bring out in all the people I come in contact with, or I live in a much more petty orbit, and that is ultimately what I will help bring out in people. Every person I meet, I can bring out the best in them, and I can bring out the worst in them. But there's only one way I can bring out the best in them. That is, if I bring out the best in myself first. If you live within yourself in a higher state of consciousness, what does it mean to live in a higher state of consciousness? It means that you know who you are. Who are you? For this, we all know, the Rebbe would say, who are you? You're the ladder of Jacob in his dream. The ladder that stands on the ground, Sula Mutsavartsa, the top of the ladder reaches heaven. The Tanya says, Yaakov Hevel Nachalasai. Imagine yourself as a rope. You are the interlacing link between heaven and earth. Your soul's posture reaches into God Himself, the Godhead. And it comes down all the way down to the lowest terrain of earth right here in Mainline, Pennsylvania, 2021, or wherever you are. You are that rope. You are that link. At every moment, I could live a bent life, caved in, surrendered, mediocre. I think Thoreau said most people live lives of quiet desperation. Or I could stand straight with my spiritual, emotional, psychological, and physical posture, reflecting my true heights. And what are my true heights? My true heights is, I am the link between the infinite and the finite. Every soul of every Jew is a chelik eleka mimal mamish, the Tanya says. A tale of two souls in one city. And one of those souls is a piece of God, a fragment of the divine. You are a piece of divinity sent into this world. It's a fractured world, of course. You've got to make it whole. I'm looking out the window here. We have, it looks like almost two feet of snow. Kids are excited. Here they have school. But no school today, of course. Everybody was out in the snow. I also, of course, had to be out in the snow. I didn't want to be called a detached, brainy uh, father. So I was out in the snow. It was a great, great experience, close to two feet of snow. We built a snowman, we did some sledding, we rolled in the snow, we went on the sliding ponds. It was a great experience, but it was freezing. <laughs> and I remembered a story. The third president of Israel, his name was Zalman Shazar, came to New York, February 1973. It was freezing, like tonight here, freezing. And he meets the Lubavitcher Rebbe. And he says to him, he says, it gets cold in Israel, but frostbite like here, I can't endure. How do you guys live here on the East Coast? How do you live here? We don't have this in Israel. And without skipping a heartbeat, the Rebbe says to the president of Israel, that's exactly why God sent down Jewish souls to the world to bring warmth into a cold climate, to bring light into a dark climate terrain there's a fractured world there's a cold world of course that's why you were sent there (laughs) but for this you have to remember who you are you're not cold you're not fractured you're not fragmented you're not broken 
You are a fragment of heaven. You're a piece of infinity. You are a piece of Hashem Himself, so to speak. And just as God is invincible, your soul is invincible. At your core, you are wholesome. You are full of promise, happiness, confidence, resilience, faith, light, wholesomeness, and happiness. But you must be able to stand straight and recognize your true height. And then, every person you meet, beginning with yourself, you know, you're not here to argue. You're not here to become part of the problem. You're here to show people their real light. How? Simply by you being a source of love. You know, when I go out often, obviously today much less because of Corona, I still get out. Often look at people, and it always seems to me that people are so desperate for love. They're so desperate for love. They're so desperate for somebody to tell them that they're loved, that they're accepted, to be validated. And when we don't, didn't, when we don't feel that inside, we substitute it. Some of us drinking, and some of us uh, internet. And some of us through looking by looking for attention. I just want attention. Because I need to substitute that void. And the Jewish approach to this is, you're looking for love, you become the source of love. You become that source. When people see you in the supermarket, when people see you in the synagogue, when people see you in the office, when people see you in the street, they'll immediately be able to look at you and say, she's a source where you can get love. He is a lover. He is a source where you can get love. She is an ambassador of love. He is an ambassador of light and hope and healing. You become that person. You say, nah, I'm desperate. I've been in therapy for 32 years and it still didn't help. I go from yoga to Pilates to the gym to the first therapist. Then I go to another therapist. Then my mother gets into a fight with me. Then I say, I'm the wrong person. And I say to you, you have to learn who you are. You have to straighten out your posture. This class is brought to you by the yeshiva.net. Please help us continue the classes. Make even a small contribution at www.theyeshiva.net slash donate.